You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, our focus this morning will be on verses 1 through 3. I'll be reading verses 3, 12 through 4, 5. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, my Also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, grant grace without which we are hopeless to obey these commands. Grant grace to forgive us For all the ways we have disobeyed these commands. And then strikingly, in the moment, it's almost as if the grounds... The thing that actually makes these things happen has to be presumed and having been been carried with us and highlighted prior to and after this, or we won't obey these commands. These commands only find root in the soil of the gospel. And so, Father, I pray... That the gospel that we've heard again and again and again, that we celebrate, that we love, that we cherish, I pray it will be heavy at the forefront of our minds as we go into our text today. So that we will stand firm for it, by it, and stand together 
as we're centered on it. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Stand firm, stand together. That's the sum of our text. And though it's delightfully simple, I think you'll also find it satisfyingly deep as we go into it. Only the saints can do this. Paul is writing to the saints in Philippi, and it's only to the saints that Paul could write such a command. Only the saints can truly stand firm and stand together. The church of Jesus Christ is unique in this. As she stands firm, and as she stands together, she stands out. She is the pillar and buttress of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. She is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Ephesians 2.20. The church stands on bedrock. She's built on the immutable truth of the eternal Christ. This world stands on sand. She stands on lies. She tries to stand in the air. Now it's true that this world stands with one foot, as it were, on God's truth. She can't but do that. Or her every action would be nonsensical and illogical. But she's, though she stands with one foot on God's truth, as it were, the other in the devil's lies, and that's where she puts her weight. The saints stand not because their knees are stronger, but because they stand with both feet planted in faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. Only the saints can stand firm. Only the saints can stand together. We confess there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One truth, one gospel, one salvation. There are many counterfeits. Whenever this world displays any kind of unity, it's only a unity in distinction to other unities. The Axis powers were as united as the Allied powers. The only thing this world is united in is rebellion against Jesus. But even then, there are factions because... There are so many entities wanting to do rebellion in their own way. Because man rebels against God, there's not only war against heaven, there's war between men. Hating our Creator, in whose image we were made, we hate our fellow man who bears His image. The church confesses that there's one God and one Lord, And because this is so, she can confess that there is one holy, Catholic, apostolic church. Look at all the ways this world tries to solve division. And the result is, she only creates more. Her attempts at unifying are like a child trying to make little square pieces of jello one by mashing them together. There's only more multiplication, more mess as a result. The one place where there can be true unity is the church of Jesus Christ. And this isn't due to any kind of worldly tactic or method or philosophy. It's because the church is one. A blood-bought throng of the Lord Jesus Christ from every people tribe, language, and nation made one by the cross of Christ. These commands can only grow in the soil of the gospel. And church, if they don't grow, the answer is as simple as this. We are failing to live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. The first command comes as a conclusion. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm. Therefore, stand firm. 
comes as a conclusion. What's a conclusion? What is it a conclusion to? And I believe the answer is everything that you have marked off as chapter 3. In light of that, Paul comes to this conclusion. It's not everything that chapter 3 was meant to tell you. It's just as a result of everything that he said in chapter 3, this is one conclusion that he comes to. Stand firm. As you look back from 4 and verse 1 and start pulling on what it is that has brought him to this conclusion, you keep pulling, I believe, until you've brought in all of chapter 3. But instead of working backwards, let's go back to the almost beginning. We'll get back to 3 and verse 1, but let's go back to the almost beginning, 3 and verse 2, and work our way forward and see if this doesn't work. 3 and verse 2, Paul tells them to Look out for dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, referring to the Judaizers who were insisting that circumcision is necessary, is part of our standing just and righteous before God at the end. And so in light of these false teachers perverting the gospel, stand firm. And then Paul, having spoken of them, explains that he, along with the saints, are not among those who boast in the flesh as they do, but they boast, they glory, they rejoice in Christ. And then Paul isn't content at that point simply to declare that. He does it as he says, I count everything as loss for knowing Christ. For being conformed to His image and knowing Christ, everything else is rubbish. 3, 3 through 11. And Paul then explains that with this, he's not arrived at perfection, but he presses on to know Christ and be conformed to His image. And he calls for the Philippians to think in this same way, those who are mature among them. And as for those that are not mature, they're to hold on to whatever degree of sanctification they have attained. And so, as paradoxical as it may seem, You see that standing firm is an expression of pressing on. And that pressing on is an expression that you are standing firm. And then Paul calling, having called for the Philippians to think as he does in pressing on, he then calls for them to imitate him. Imitate him in distinction from those for whom he has shed tears that now walk as enemies of the Christ. They have committed apostasy. They've fallen away. And so, stand firm. And then notice this. This command is sandwiched between two calls to rejoice in the Lord. 3.1, finally, my brothers, now we're at the very beginning, rejoice in the Lord. 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. The very place that you are to stand firm is the same place that you are to rejoice in the Lord. Indeed, because of that modifier, rejoice in the Lord always, your standing firm is to be a rejoicing in the Lord. I think we can see this. Rejoicing in the Lord is is the means whereby you stand firm. You want to stand firm against the onslaughts that will come against you in your faith? Be resolved to rejoice in the Lord always and those temptations won't appeal to you. So, standing firm to be an expression of rejoicing, of glorifying Christ, as we've seen Paul do in response to the Judaizers and their attacks against the gospel in chapter 3. How does he stand firm? He ridicules their efforts as he rejoices in the gospel. This peculiar mix of emotions that you have here is not just like sweet surrounding a salty command. You've got these sweet commands, rejoice in the Lord, a salty one in the middle, stand firm. It's not just sweet around the salty, 
This peculiar mix of emotions I want you to see is sweet mixed in with the salty command itself. Notice all the warm affection that surrounds this militant command. It's a military image that's evoked by it. Stand firm, and he's given them this command saying, Brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved, all this family imagery. And then he calls for them to stand firm. Philippians 1, Paul spoke of offering up his prayer for these Philippians with joy. 1.8, he spoke of yearning for them with the affection of Christ. Paul displays throughout this letter, as in no other letter, his affection for the Philippians. But at this point, he exceeds everything else in the letter. He lays it on especially thick here. He refers to them as brothers throughout the letter. He refers to them as beloved, again, in chapter 2 and verse 12. Eight times he says brothers in this letter, six of which are in addressing the Philippians themselves. But only here are they used together, brothers and my beloved. And he doesn't just simply say, my brothers. He says, my brothers whom I love and long for. And he adds to all of this, my joy and my crown. What are we to make of all all of this? I think the first thing is that all the affection that you see Paul speaking to here, calling for them to stand firm, is a mirror image, a flipped image of the tears that he spoke of concerning those who now walk as the enemies of the cross of Christ. He mourns over those who have left the faith and war against the gospel. But here, all this affection and warmth is an expression towards those whom he regards as fellow citizens those who are waiting their Savior, who will conform them to His image whenever He comes to make all things new, 321. It's as though Paul so overloads this command to stand firm with affection and warmth that it spills over and creates that next command. You see? Stand together. All that love and warmth and affection in which he's enveloping them almost stands independent now and becomes its own command, stand together. But we're getting ahead of where I want to be at this point. Before we next move on to the next command, let's tease out what it means to stand firm more precisely. The first, the obvious, is that it means there is an opposition. It means that the gospel is opposed. It's opposed by those opponents who are outside the church that Paul speaks of in chapter 1 and verse 27. Opponents. They're outside of the church. It's opposed by those who seek to infiltrate the church like the Judaizers with their false teaching that he speaks of in chapter 3. It's opposed by those who defect from the church like those who have become enemies of the cross of Christ, 3.18. So means that the gospel's opposed. Second, this call to stand firm isn't, isn't left to you in any vague sense. Because Paul says, stand firm thus. He's been not simply speaking of what it means to stand firm. He's been demonstrating it in his own life, what it means to stand firm. He calls for them to imitate Him as He has this singular focus of forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. He's demonstrating what it, demonstrated what it means to stand firm in all the kind of opposition that He's dealt with, be it those in chapter 1 who are preaching the gospel, the true gospel, but they're preaching it to develop some kind of envy and pain Paul in some kind of way. Or he's, he's demonstrated it in the Judaizers and their attack against the gospel. And he's stood firm as he ridicules their teaching and rejoices in Christ. 
Third, finally, we're told to stand firm in the Lord. This means in the Lord is a reference to Jesus Christ, the God-man. In other words, Christ is the gospel. This is a stand firm both for the gospel and by the gospel. That's what it means to stand firm in the Lord. That standing firm in the Lord means standing for the gospel is plain in 127. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving For the faith of the gospel. So standing firm in the Lord means a striving, contending, standing firm for the gospel. The connection between standing, guarding is also apparent in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either By our spoken word or by our letter. Stand firm. Hold. The military metaphor has the idea. Carrying that idea of standing for the gospel. But I believe it also conveys that we are to stand by the gospel. And that's plain. What we already saw that. Rejoicing in the Lord is a means whereby we stand firm in the Lord. Rejoicing in Christ is a reveling and enjoying and celebrating the gospel. And as you do that, you are standing firm for the gospel. Rejoicing is how you stand firm. And it's also plain in that earlier command... Whenever Paul told us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. The only way you obey this command is the same way you obey every command. And that means you obey from the gospel. Standing on the gospel. All your obedience flourishing from the gospel, rooted in the gospel of Christ. Also, Paul tells the Ephesians to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. It's the same idea being conveyed here. There's, there's a dual aspect to this command. Stand firm for the gospel, but stand firm by the gospel. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Or Jude ends his letter with a doxology praising Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. If you stand firm, it's because of Christ. If we stand for the gospel, it is only because we stand by the gospel, on the gospel. But again, we're not only to stand firm, we are to stand together. Verses 2 and 3. And as we'll see further, these commands are intertwined. At first glance, this command seems only to involve two individuals. Yodia and Syntyche, of whom we know nothing else. Yes, it only involves these two women, but consider this. This is a letter to the church at Philippi. It's a public letter. It's not only a letter to this church, but Paul's letters were expected to be circulated. He commanded the Colossians 4.16, When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Paul names names. He names women. Consider how exceptional this is with Paul. 
Normally, whenever he does something like this, most of the time whenever he names names of people within the body, there's praise and commendation. And if it's not that, if he's naming someone in a negative way, they're false teachers. That's not the case here. Rather than judge Paul for naming these women, perhaps we should judge the situation by what Paul does. This speaks not to any kind of, I think, sin in Paul, but to the seriousness of the situation. We don't have anything really to go on. We We don't know the situation, and that's a blessing, isn't it? Otherwise, we might think, well, this kind, of, this kind of seriousness that Paul brings to this only would apply to this kind of situation. There has to be a public nature to their dissension. There certainly is now. But even when there's not, you don't think there is at least. Realize this, church. Your private conflict within the body of Christ is not private. A head cold impacts the whole body. An infected finger causes pain for the body. We are the body of Christ. Because the church is one, we must be one. In this way, all dissension All division, all contention, all bitterness between members of the body is a matter for the body. Paul calls for these two women to agree in the Lord. This is the only place such agreement can be found in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord, now agree in the Lord. In the Lord Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile have been made one, a new humanity, a new man, a new creation in Christ. In 2, 1 through 5, Paul admonished them to be one in light of their shared gospel experience, in light of the gospel itself telling them, if there's any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. If, if If you Philippians, you over here and you over here, if you have anything of a shared experience in Christ, is this plea. Complete my joy. Now he's leveraging their love for him as a reason for them to love one another. And he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on at that point. To make clear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he humbled himself. Not only to become incarnate and walk in flesh among sinners. But he humbled himself to the point of death. Even the death on a cross. Bearing the sins of his people. And then he rose triumphant from the grave, defeating their foes, and is exalted to the right hand of the Father from which he rules and will come again. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the basis upon which Paul says, not simply, be of one mind. That's the basis upon which the church is one. Consider how hopeless and vain all calls for unity are outside of the gospel context of the church of Jesus Christ. Especially in our postmodern age. Two people disagree. 
And so, whenever they sit down to argue, they take everything as a personal attack. And the reason is, because it is personal. Because all their beliefs and opinions are so subjective. It's all their own. They base their whole concept of the world upon what they feel and what they think. And so whenever they sit down to argue and someone disagrees with them, they are really, truly disagreeing with them. Does this sound like our current atmosphere? The only grounds upon which a Christian can hope to have any conversation with an unbeliever, indeed the only grounds upon which any unbelievers can really hope to gain any traction in any kind of argument, is that if there will be an agreement that truth is something that lies outside of ourselves, that there is some kind of appeal to authority, such that whenever we argue, we're going at the truth. We're not going at one another. And we can walk away from the conversation saying, we may still disagree, but... We can agree that we're both going after the truth out of respect, out of love, a concern for one another and for society that our actions and thoughts and behaviors and belief would correspond to reality, you see. Both parties must admit up front that the truth is critical. G.K. Chesterton once said, people generally quarrel because they cannot argue. And it's extraordinary to notice how few people in the modern world can argue. That is why there are so many quarrels breaking out again and again and never coming to any natural end. But inside the church, beloved, we not only agree that there is such a thing as truth, We give it a common name, the name by which it is known. We give it a common definition. Jesus Christ, the gospel, the faith. We confess together sola scriptura that the word of God is the holy, inspired, and errant word of God Almighty, sufficient for all our life. The saints can disagree on many minor points. But if there is agreement in the Lord, all of that is of much lesser consequence. Chesterton again said, in contrast to the world, who says doctrine divides. He said, doctrine does not cause dissensions. Rather, a doctrine alone can cure our dissensions. We agree in the Lord. J.C. Ryle writes, The cross is the grand center of union among true Christians. Our outward differences are many without doubt. One man is an Episcopalian, another is a Presbyterian, one is an Independent, another a Baptist, one a Calvinist, another an Arminian, one is a Lutheran, one another a Plymouth brother. One is a friend to establishments, another a friend to the voluntary system. One is a friend to liturgies, another a friend to extemporary prayer. But after all, what shall we hear about most of these differences in heaven? Nothing, most probably. Nothing at all. Does a man really and sincerely glory in the cross of Christ? That is the grand question. If he does, he is my brother. We are traveling on the same road. We are journeying towards a home where Christ is all and everything in outward religion will be forgotten. But if he does not glory in the cross of Christ, I cannot feel comfort about him. Union in outward points is only union for a time. Union about the cross is union for eternity. Error on the outward points is only a skin-deep disease. Error about the cross is disease at the heart. Union about outward points is a mere man-made union. Union about the cross of Christ can only be produced by the Holy Spirit. Now that's not to say that all these other matters are unimportant, but it is to say that they are not Jesus. The call here is not to agree 
and all millennialism. The call is not to agree in the color of the carpet. The call is to agree in the only place where there can be agreement. And it's in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can go much further than Ryle spoke of, can we not? We are the same local body. We share the same confession. We confess the creeds together, the solas of the Reformation. How much is there that we agree on? And so in light of that, do you realize how blasphemous? I'm not talking about a mere kind of disagreement or a pain that we don't see things the same way. Do you realize how blasphemous Full-blown dissension, bitterness within the body of Christ is because we are saying there will be no unity unless we agree in this. You have supplanted the head of Jesus Christ with your own idol at that point. Ask yourself, is this not a truth that the church, and especially the church today, needs to hear? The call is to agree in the Lord. And then further, we just as equally need to understand the the inversion of this as well. If there is no agreement in the Lord. I don't care what title, what name you put on the thing. There is no agreement. Agree in the Lord. This is the only place in the world where there can be true unity. It's within a local body and fellowship. We, we cannot demonstrate fully and substantially, the unity of the body of Christ as it will be recognized in heaven. You cannot fellowship with the universal body of Christ in a, in a profound and deep way. But in the local body, you are to find the expression of the unity of the church as it exists everywhere and always. This is the only place where there can be true unity, is in a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a unity that the saints truly have in Christ and can only live live out so long as Christ remains the center. I went to a conference some years back and it was always a joyous Time. I'd been to this conference many times, every time that it had met, save once. And the black pastor preached a gospel message that you could sense every soul in there, regardless of their ethnicity, was one as that gospel was being preached. And then I was devastated whenever a white pastor began to guilt anyone present with less melanin into being unified. He was holding out worldly tactics and methods to produce unity and he was causing more and more division as he tried to force his hands around the jello. The unity exists in Christ. You want to see that unity flourish and grow? Hold up Christ. Agree in the Lord. You want agreement? You want unity? Hold up the Lord. And it's whenever we replace the Lord with something else that divisions will multiply. John writes, This commandment we have from Him Whoever loves God must love 
his brother. You want unity in the body of Christ? You want to see love for your brother? Don't look so much to your brother. Look to Christ and then see Christ in your brother. While Paul pleads and he implores and he entreats these women to agree in the Lord, you see him, he asks this true companion to help them in this. Verse 3. It's almost without question that this person is an elder of such high esteem by Paul, known by them, that he doesn't even have to name him. Some have suspected that the Greek word we have here is his name. I don't think that carries really any weight upon examination. Learn this as we see this. Disagreements are to be taken care of. Disagreements within the church are to be taken care of by the church. I think perhaps the reason why Paul brings such a seriousness to this is maybe he's recalling an episode that happened earlier in the life of the Corinthian church. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 1-8. through 8, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that you are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers... To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Now outside of crimes that must involve the state so that justice may be done as God has given her authority to do. Outside of crimes... Such matters are to be handled in-house. The church should clean her own house. Disagreements in the church are to be handled by the church in a churchly manner as those who are heavenly citizens living worthy of the gospel of Christ. And note how Paul goes on to further identify these women. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul piles on phrase after phrase as he's identifying who these women are that speaks to togetherness and unity for the cause of Christ. Now do you see the wholeness of this passage? Stand firm for the Lord. And now he's speaking of all this togetherness that they had as they were contending for the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. Recall the warmth of Paul's opening in this letter where he spoke of their partnership in the gospel. Quite often, when we insist on dissensions and divisions, it's because we're fighting fights that don't matter and are failing to fight the only one that does. To the degree that we fail to stand together, we fail to stand firm. And as Paul recalls the identity of these women, it also reminds you of the peculiar situation out of, the, out of which the Philippian church grew. It was Paul's standard practice that whenever he came to a place, he would visit the local synagogue. Now apparently there was not one in Philippi. There had to be a certain number of, of men to constitute a synagogue. That wasn't there. And so he goes to the river where people had gathered for prayer. We read in Luke, Acts, Luke records for us, on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. 
One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, in her household as well, she urged us, saying, if, we have, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. Seems highly likely that Euodia and Syntyche were among these women who had gathered there that day. They, they were with Paul early on and were laboring alongside him, him in the gospel at Philippi. And recall the hostile environment of Philippi. These were bold and courageous women who labored alongside Paul in that environment. And what I want you to see, saints, do not think you are immune from this. Don't think you're always in the right. Division and dissension can come even between the most mature, and beloved, and dear of saints. And whenever it does come, let us see that it comes between those whose names are in the book of life. God has put our names on the same roll. Is that not enough? See the gospel implications that Paul is bringing to this command? Is that not enough? Agree in the Lord. He's written your names down eternally as elect in Christ. God the Father has declared, child, 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 in Christ, so that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Agree in Christ. Will you dare disown and disfellowship for your petty Arguments, those whom Christ has owned as children, washing away their sins by the blood of Christ. We may and we will disagree on many things. And in some painful ways, it may even mean we have to part in some kind of degree or way. It might mean we have brothers who start a Presbyterian church across the street because of their conviction. And we would say in love, worship the Lord as you see appropriate in that way. We would not want you to sin against your conscience and you go with our blessing and our love. So there are disagreements here that will only be resolved in heaven. But let us keep things in proper perspective. Feel free to disagree on so many things so long as you allow them never to eclipse the agreement that you have in the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson comments, Christian fellowships are often at their worst when dealing with differences of opinion. In some ways, biblically-based churches find it easier to deal with false teaching. But personal differences can be almost as deadly, dividing the fellowship, sowing seeds of bitterness, diverting attention from central issues to sometimes petty peripheral concerns, sucking energy that should be employed in building up the believers and in reaching out to the community. How effectively we handle these differences may say more about the biblical character of our church life than how we handle heresy. So the scary thing is, is if we fail to stand together, we will fail to stand firm and thus fall on both accounts. But also realize, if you fail to stand firm in the Lord, there's no gospel glue so that you can stand together. So even if you maintain the illusion of unity, it's not unity in the Lord. It's vain and empty. But beloved, brothers and sisters, dear ones in Christ, whom I love with the affection of Christ, 
we have this blessed promise. That the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And remember that that promise was made in light of the rock upon which Christ said He would found His church. And that rock was the apostolic confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because we confess one Lord, we confess one holy, Catholic, apostolic church. And so church then with faith. Not with self-striving and man-made methods of manipulation, but in faith. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand together in the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, we confess we need You and we rejoice that all that we need is in Christ. All we need to endure to the end is Christ. So we cling to Him and we acknowledge our clinging to Him is grace itself. Gospel-given grace that keeps us clinging. And all our efforts towards unity and agreement are not trying to create something that is not, but express something that is. We are one in Christ. So Father, for the glory of Your name, we plead now. We see the gospel opposed by those without, by those within, by those who have left. We pray That we would stand firm. That we would stand together in the Lord and for the glory of His name. The name of Jesus in whom we plead this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.